Ashby Foot with Bigger Pie Forum podcast, and it's our pleasure today to be in downtown Jackson, where we're visiting with one of Mississippi's most recent immigrants, Douglas Carswell, who came into the state a few months ago to be the new CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Welcome, Douglas. Ashby, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I heard much about you. I've visited with you a little while, but I really look forward to visiting with us today to cover some of the things that uh, you hope to bring to Mississippi and some of the life experiences that have formed your way of looking at things. And uh, we're hoping that that you can have great success at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, which has been a fixture here in Mississippi for about... It was 30 years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Outstanding. Tell me what Mississippi Center for Public Policy's mission is. We promote free market ideas. We believe in what you might roughly call Reagan economics, the idea that individuals are better when they're free to do things for themselves and their families, when human creativity is allowed to flourish free from the hindrance of government, and when the founding ideals of America that allowed all those things to be possible is maintained. And I think it it is a joy to be part of that because I think actually this is probably the most important fight of our lives. One of the things I'm sure our our listeners will be interested in is, is how does somebody from Britain end up coming here to help Mississippi fight this important fight? Well, by way of background, before I came over here, I was a member of the British Parliament for 12 years. I stood four times, I got re-elected, re-elected every time. And while I was a member of Parliament, I was involved in that little matter of so-called Brexit. This was Britain's decision to leave the European Union. It was, you might call it our version of Yorktown, except we didn't have to go through the, 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 the difficulties of, 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 of defeating the Redcoats. We just outvoted them. I believe in liberty and having done Brexit, which was completed on December the 31st last year, I started my new role here on January the 4th, literally the weekend after Brexit was done. So it was the perfect turning of the page. And I, I came here for two real reasons. First and foremost, I believe in American exceptionalism. Sometimes when I say this to Americans, I don't think they quite get it. But Trust me, America is the most exceptional country in the world. There is no other country like America. Now, I know it's deeply unfashionable to say this, and if you listen to those left-wing liberal academics in universities who have tenure, they will encourage young minds to think the opposite. But trust me, there is no country as successful as the United States. The United States was, at one time, 13 rather ramshackled British colonies, and yet it has become the most exceptional republic because of its founding ideals. And its founding ideals didn't just elevate the United States, they have elevated the condition of humankind throughout the world. And this is worth preserving. Trust me on this, this is precious. I know you guys see it up close and you take it for granted, but it is incredibly precious. And I believe in it, and I want to make sure that it is preserved. Let me offer our listeners some additional context for you, because having never seen or heard of you probably before, This is a great time for them to really get to know Douglas Carr as well. From the bottom up, you have a really interesting life journey. I've read one of your books here. You've written, I think, four books. Is that correct? Yeah. And I started reading one of your books last week. Fascinating book by itself. And the fact that you were born in Uganda and lived, I guess, the first eight years of your life in Uganda, you go... How does that happen? How did you end up, how did your parents end up being in Uganda? Well, it was, it was a little longer than eight years. Uganda was my home until my late teens. Um, oh, okay. It was for all of my childhood and my early adulthood. Um, 
Uganda, for those who don't know, is a small republic in the middle of Africa. We lived bang on the equator. Literally, the equator was a couple of miles away from us. And it was an example of a small republic that had gained its independence from the British and fallen apart. It was a perfect example of how not to do it. And one of the reasons why Uganda was so unhappy is not only because it didn't have the insights of the founding fathers, the founding generation, to guide it, it it inherited from the British a lot of socialist nonsense from the 1950s. One of these ideas was that governments should control the economy. And after the British pulled out, the newly independent Uganda had a series of dictators who tried to run its economy, and the country fell apart. So I've always been interested in economics long before I even knew what the word economics meant, let alone before I could spell it, because I could see with my own eyes what government dictatorship and intervention did to ordinary people. One of the extraordinary things about growing up in Uganda is the lesson it gave me, the crash course it gave me as a child in free market economics. Long before I could even spell the word economics, I understood from what I saw around me, the lived experience I had as a child growing up, what big government could do and how it impoverished people. When the government stopped trade, the country became poorer. When the government controlled the prices of things, people became poorer. When farmers were no longer allowed to sell the crops they grew at the market price because the government intervened in the market, they became poorer. So it gave me a crash course in free market economics and it taught me from a very, very early age that actually human progress is a product of freedom and anything that inhibits freedom inhibits human progress and is immoral. Your father was a doctor in Uganda? My, my father was a surgeon, my mother was a doctor. They were okay. both doctors and they were pretty busy because it was a country that didn't have too many doctors. And they were very, I mean, they were very committed. It was, people say, what was I doing there? It was home. It was, you know, as much um, my home as where you grew up, or yeah. where the listeners grew up was their home. It was my home, very much my home. I belonged there. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. But gosh, there were an awful lot of people there who lived in grinding poverty. And my parents, as two doctors, were kept very, very busy. Um, there were, I remember there was a, a constant stream of people, many of whom had walked for many, many miles, some of them really quite sick, wanting medical treatment. But you know, the remarkable thing is how Uganda has improved since. The image we have of Uganda as being a disaster-prone, poverty-stricken country living under tyrants, it's just out of date now. It's, it's growing at 6% a year, a massive middle class. Now, the president might be called autocratic rather than tyrannical, but you know, um, the country is on the way up. It proves that freedom, freedom works for every culture, every color, every continent. My understanding is that uh, Idi Amin was the president. I was born in May 71, and I believe he came to office in a military coup in April 71. So he was pretty much the president. And one of my earliest memories was the so-called Entebbe raid. It was actually July the 4th, 1976. The day you guys in America were celebrating your 200th birthday, we had a little local difficulty in Uganda with the Entebbe raid, but it turned out the good guys won in the end. Right. Um, but he was very much a, a figure in the background as a child, uh, in my childhood. I think I'm right in saying one of his sons was in my school, if I remember correctly. But I believe he had many sons, so that may not be quite as exceptional a fact as it at first may seem. So you left Uganda and went back to Britain. My parents left Uganda in the late 80s, yeah. And so when you started your, you know, educational efforts, you aspired to be a historian? No, I was always very interested in history. Um, I was interested in history because I read a book called um, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which 
for those of your older listeners like me who will remember it, was written by Paul Kennedy in the 1980s. And it talked about, it spoke to this fear America had at the time of inevitable decline. And it was a military and economic history of the past 500 years. And it showed how great powers rise and fall. And it really fascinated me. It, it got me fascinated in history. And I found myself delving deeper and deeper back into reading eventually the sort of, um, you know, not just history of the foundation of the American Republic, but of the Roman Republic, Polybius, and how it was that, you know, Rome proved to be so exceptional. So ever since reading that book um, by Paul Kennedy, I, I became interested in, in history. And I studied as an undergraduate at East Anglia University, which is where Paul Kennedy had taught before moving to America and to Harvard and becoming phenomenally successful with this book. There were two things I think I was probably looking for. Um, one is to go to the university where Paul Kennedy had been, and I probably, when I got there, learnt that actually uh, there's much to be said for moving to America, as he had done. From there, you it somehow got uh, engaged in politics. What was it that got you into politics? I think Margaret Thatcher made me realise that I was a conservative. Um, I talked about a sense in the 1980s that the United States was in decline. There was very much in Britain when I... I remember when I was a young... Schoolboy starting a boarding school in Britain, there was this sense that the country was finished, that it was falling apart, that it was inevitably in decline. And then this extraordinary outsider appeared, Margaret Thatcher, and she started to say, this is not the case. We can sort ourselves out. These are problems that we can fix. This decay is a consequence of vested interests and poor public policy. And if we embrace the free market, she really made me believe that actually the key to a successful flourishing society is not how many pink bits of empire there are on the map or it's not how big your navy is. The key to success is having free market ideas. And Milton Friedman, he published a book called Free to Choose, but he also made a TV series. And I remember watching that and thinking, gosh, there's, you know, there's really something in this. This is, this is extraordinary. I was fortunate enough to be able to come over to America a year or so ago and meet Bob Chister, who was the producer of that yeah, series. Right. Okay. And I actually met him, I stayed in Vermont at um, Fairley, where Milton and Rose Friedman had a house. And we actually spent uh, a few days in that house, Milton Friedman's old house, with the producer of that series. And gosh, you know, George Schultz died a couple of weeks ago, aged 100. But it was George Schultz who said of Milton Friedman that he was the most influential man of the 20th century. And you can understand why. I mean, he really was. Then you came and ran for the um, for Parliament, yeah. for the House of Commons. I became convinced that Britain was on the road to ruin if it remained in the European Union. For those American friends of mine listening to this, don't make the mistake of thinking that the European Union is a version of the United States in Europe on the other side of the Atlantic. The European Union is very unlike the United States. I have, for example, in front of me a copy of um, the Constitution of the United States of America. And if I open the first page of the Constitution of the United States of America, the um, this slender document, I think it's got 4,500 and something words in it, it starts off with, we the people of the United States. Well, the Constitution of the European Union starts off with, by proclamation of the King of the Belgians. Um, the United States and its constitution are a product of the people seizing control and asserting their sovereignty. The European Union is a product of elites seizing control and telling their people to get into line. And if you try to run 500 million people's lives in Europe that way, you will ruin the economy, you will create unhappiness, and you will destroy democracy. And that is what the European Union is doing. I felt the best thing I could do is try and make sure that my country, United Kingdom, left, and I hope by, by that example, 
um, we will encourage others to leave this hideous, monstrous um, bureaucratic empire. Well, I guess it's now been close to five years since the Brexit movement shocked the world when they won that vote. And, uh, you know, those type of populist movements, they're really not supposed to win. They're supposed to just move the discussion and, and, and hopefully one in the right, correct direction that they want. So that was just such a shocking political development. That, was, that Brexit was actually succeeded. It was shocking in two ways. It was shocking to the Remainer elite who felt that it couldn't possibly win because they had never met anyone who actually believed in all that stuff. And it was shocking to them that having happened, it hasn't actually ended in disaster for Britain. After the referendum, I was repeatedly told by Remainers that if Britain actually went ahead and did what the people had voted for and left the European Union, the planes would fall out of the sky, there would be a shortage of food, the borders would be shut, hospitals wouldn't work, there'd be a shortage of medicine. In fact, we've left, and not only have we left, the very first act we've done independently is procure our own vaccines and do so incredibly successfully. Had we remained in the European Union, we wouldn't be at the stage we are now of having we're online to inoculating all of our population by the end of June, uh, certainly the end of July. The European Union, I think I'm right in saying, has inoculated something like, uh, you know, two, two and a half percent of its population. It proves, I think, that the, the vaccine issue shows that small states can be better than big states. Small states can be nimble, they can uh, devolve control. Of course, when I say small states, the great exception to this is, is the United States, which is a, a collection of small states combined in a union, the United States. It's, it's the one state in the world that manages to combine the advantages of being small and nimble with, with, with economies of scale. But the, the European Union and other big states are really struggling. Uh, Britain outside the European Union is doing rather well. And I, I think it's not just in terms of vaccine that we'll do well. We're starting to go through, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, is starting to review all of the bureaucratic laws that have been imposed on us in the manner of George III against our will over the past 40 years, and removing those that actually inhibit growth and innovation. And boy, there are a lot of them. There are an enormous number of regulations that have been imposed on Britain that we can scrap and uh, get rid of. This is all great stuff, particularly as it applies to, you know, what the possibilities for Mississippi are. And, but before we get to that, you've also been a writer. You've written several books, and I've started reading one of your books here. It's called Rebel, How to Overthrow the Emerging Oligarchy by Douglas Carswell. And it's got a fist, a big red <laughs> fist on the front of it. It's a very confrontational title and it's a very confrontational cover the and i found the book fascinating myself just as as i'm through about 65 pages of it but it's chock full of really fascinating anecdotes and observations similar to what you've been talking about so far how have your books been met by the the reading audience out there well i'm a conservative and people might say why have i got a raised clenched fist which is a revolutionary symbol on the front page well actually i think the idea of the free market is incredibly subversive I think establishments today, as establishments have throughout history, not liked the free market. In um, medieval Europe, the free market was opposed by kings and princelings who didn't like the idea of this pesky merchant class being rich and being able to, you know, trade freely and, and, and you know, they wanted to control them. The British establishment didn't like the idea of merchants in Boston being able to trade freely in tea. Um, throughout history, powerful elites have always rigged the system against the free market. And what I'm trying to get at with this idea of rebel is that the free market idea, the idea of people being free to do what they want economically and morally and intellectually is a very subversive idea. 
And boy, there is a big, powerful oligarchy emerging that we need to subvert. The free market is under threat and under attack. Don't make the mistake of assuming that big business is pro the free market. Actually, you often see a nexus between big corporate interests and big, powerful elites. And this nexus, I'm afraid, has become far too powerful, not just in Britain, but in the United States. And whisper it gently, um, just between us and the confidence of this interview, I think there are one or two vested interests in Mississippi who don't like the free market. You think so? Okay. You think there's some oligarchs in Mississippi? Well, I notice there are a lot of boards and commissions, and Uh a lot of economic activity in this state is governed by a permission-based system. Let's expand on permission-based system. So, so that by that you mean where you have to get permits in order to take, for example, healthcare. Okay. By almost any measure, Mississippi has worse healthcare outcomes than neighboring states. One of the reasons for that is because in Mississippi they have something called, appropriately, the Con Laws, Certificate of Need Laws. The Certificate of Need Laws have been around for about forty years, and they basically prevent new providers coming into the market and providing new services. You need to get this permit, the certificate of need. It's worse than just needing the permit. The people who sit on the board that determine whether or not you get that permit are the people who are already in the market. So you have this perfect system of producer capture, and it pushes up healthcare costs, and it helps to explain why more people in Mississippi avoid going clinical treatment that they need because of cost than in any other state. It's directly hindering the happiness and the health of people. It's a rigged market rigged in the interests of powerful vested interests. And if you don't believe me, watch what happens when you do as we're trying to do. You try and put a bill through the legislature or encourage the putting of a bill through the legislature to change this. A lot of vested interests come out and they explain why actually, you know, we can't trust people to decide these things for themselves. That's just one example. Occupational licensing is another. You know, Obviously, if you get on an aeroplane, you want to know that your pilot is a certified pilot. If you go and have surgery, you want to know that your doctor is a certified doctor. But do you really need a system of certification to be able to cut someone's hair? Um, I mean, judging by my hairline, I don't often need the services of a barber, but I'm willing to trust the market. I'm willing to trust the idea that, you know, I can I can go on TripAdvisor or whatever, and if, if you know, there's a bad review saying, watch this watch this person, um, you know, they're a bit careless with their clippers. Now, I, I think we can trust the free market when it comes to a lot of these things. The idea that you need somebody else's permission to earn a living is profoundly un-American and it's anti-free market, and I think it needs to go. So that's going to be a challenge to try to do that because I know there's a lot of vested interests that have a lot of political influence. If these things were both obvious and easy, they would have been done. There are vested interests. But look, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, you think about the vested interests they had to overcome. Remember how Ronald Reagan sacked those air traffic controllers? Right. Uh, You know, remember how Margaret Thatcher had to take on the unions? These were Herculean fights. I think we can win these battles, and I think we must. Every time you get free market reform against a vested interest, when it happens, you get a a, a tipping point. Before it happens, people will tell you it will be disastrous. Afterwards, people will say, it's hard to imagine how it ever could have been different. How It's hard to imagine why we didn't make the change sooner. We should never be afraid of economic liberty because economic liberty is people like you and me and your listeners deciding things for themselves using their own free judgment. And that is infinitely superior than any system of government yet created by a bureaucrat.